0: Good morning, Risen Hope. How are you? Or good afternoon. (laughs) It's going to take a while to break that. How are we doing today? That sounds about right. It is good to be with you this afternoon, Risen Hope. Um, And I am grateful for the opportunity we have to gather in a way like this. Um, God has been very gracious through Pastor Johnny, through Queensgate Baptist, and their church allowing us to use their grounds like this and their facility. Uh, I'm thankful for that and I I would just feel gratitude in your heart for these people who have been very generous and very loving with their property and what God has entrusted them. Uh, Let me pray real quick and then we'll open up God's word. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You are so good to your people and it is hard for us uh, in this season of transition right now to understand um, all that you're going to be doing in the future, all that you're going to be doing in the next couple weeks and months and in our future, Father God. It's hard for us to understand that, but we pray right now, Father, that your Spirit would come and use this day as the day that we are coming together and gathering for the first time in person and our family and friends uh, of Risen Hope who are Going to be gathering tomorrow on Sunday. I pray that you would unite and knit our hearts together in faith, that we would, through worship together, exalt and magnify your name in unity and in joy. I pray that you would protect the families here physically and protect uh, the families and the individuals spiritually here who uh, have come and gathered and who are at their homes, Father. We give you all the glory. Help us see your worth and your beauty in this text today. Don't leave us to our own devices, our own flesh. Give us eyes to see and hearts to receive. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God in his inscrutable providence and wisdom has determined this specific text on John 3:16. as you know, on the day under which we regather as a body in some way, shape, and form. Not all of us are here, but God willing, eventually that will happen as time goes on and he does his work throughout the world. And I know that many of our church family right now, when they watch this, they're going to be watching it from their homes during this season. And I want you to know, friends, we are with you. We love you. We are with you in spirit. And, uh, and I'm glad that you're able to join us still through the technology we have. But it is a good thing for me and for my heart to see faces again. It is a good thing. Um, after six long months for many of you, uh, And so for the last few weeks, we've been exploring, if you've been with us uh, online, we've been exploring the third chapter in the Gospel of John. And we've just today arrived at John 3.16, which is, I mean, as you know, the singular, most popular, famous verse of the Scriptures. Everyone knows this passage. After Jesus has been engaging Nicodemus for the entire Chapter such so far of uh, three in, in the Gospel of John, um, we see this him explain in chapter three this profound experience, this concept of being born again, this experience of, of new birth, where uh, God grants through his spirit a human being, a human soul, life, spiritual life. That's what Jesus has been talking about here. And after walking through this, Jesus turns to something we call heavenly things, things that are even beyond the supernatural reality of being born again, and he begins to cover those things in John 3.13. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first one. first heavenly thing was that the Son of Man, Christ himself, had to descend from heaven. He had to take on flesh and enter our world. That was the first heavenly thing. And the the first heavenly thing answers the question, who? Who brings us life? And the name uh, or the answer to that question is Christ, the Son of Man. Who secures the eternal life that we need? Who opens the gates of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. And if the first question is who, the second question is how? How does he do this? Well, Jesus says in verse 14 and 15, that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And we know that he's talking about the cross. That's how he does it. So the first heavenly thing was who? The second heavenly thing was how? And the third heavenly thing, the one that we come to in John three sixteen, is why? Why does God do this? Why does God send his son? And, and Jesus, in, in showing us and answering this question in John 3, 16, why God does this, has to go far deeper into the heavenly things than he's been so far. He's got to go so deep into the heavenly realities in answering this question why that Jesus must take us into the heart of God. In John 3.16, we find ourselves in the heart of God. And so, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John 3.16. And I want you to listen to these words carefully like it's the first time you've heard this. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life when jesus takes us into john 3:16 he takes us all the way we come into the furthest depths of the heavenly things that he's been talking about this entire time and we find ourselves staring into the heart of god which may be the reason why god has throughout the running centuries so greatly used this verse to open people 's eyes to his glory and his great love and to redeem them from their sin and from death and so when we look at this this verse we are we are getting caught up into the reason why the gospel exists, why Christ came, why he brought us life, why God sent his son and the answer to, the, to that reason that quite the, reason, the the question that that reason begs is God so loved. That's the answer. That's the magnitude that sits behind John three sixteen. As we look at this famous text today, I want us with fresh eyes to plumb the depths of the words of God and to plumb these specific words, God so loved. What does it mean when Jesus says God so loved? What is he trying to say? That's our focus for today. But before we even get to that, we need to ask ourselves, what, what is in God's view when he is loving? What is he looking at? We need to fix our eyes on the extent of God's love. Like, where is it focused? Uh, what or who does God love in this verse? And, and Jesus makes it very clear. For God so loved the world. The world, not just righteous people, not just people who have it together, Not just Pharisees like Nicodemus. Not even just the ethnic group, the people of Israel that he was in. God so loved the world. Every single people group to ever exist. The world. The extent of this love could not be any greater. Now think about this. The world includes everyone. Cosmos in the Greek. No one is excluded. Every single person is in view with this invitation. And this means that the gospel can be offered to any human being on the planet. No exceptions, no exclusions. We preach John 3.16 to every man, woman, and child in the world because it says very clearly here, God so loved the world. The world is the focus of God's love in John 3.16. But even though the world is in focus, we need to... Really understand here that John 3.16 tells us that the benefits of this love that God is showing to the world are exclusive. They are exclusive. They belong to a specific group of people, those who believe. Jesus says, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, and so although God may hold his arms out to the world sending his own son in plain sight for everyone to see the benefits of the love of john three sixteen are only appropriated by the human heart if we in seeing this love in the cross receive and believe in the name of the son of god the only son of god jesus christ and so i want to look very closely with you today at this love and to do that we need to look at what is at stake That's the first thing I want to really look at. What is at stake with this love that could not be any greater than it is? God so loved. Receiving this love, Jesus says, the thing that is at stake here is the difference between eternal life and perishing. Those are the two things that are at stake. Eternal life and perishing. That's a big deal. And it, it's a big deal because when Jesus is saying living, like eternal life, or, or when he's saying perishing, what he means is that forever is on the line. Forever. How we respond to this love is not trivial because it will determine our eternity. It will shape our forever, which is why Jesus doesn't stop with John three sixteen, but he continues because he really wants Nicodemus to know the stakes. He wants him to feel the weight of this. So let's listen to Jesus unpack John 3 16 in verses 17 and 18. Listen to what he says here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here are the stakes, condemnation and salvation. That's what Jesus is saying here. It, it, and it all turns, it all pivots on believing in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus begins to explain John three sixteen by telling us God's Son, Jesus himself, did not come into the world to condemn the world. That's how Jesus introduces to us what is at stake with John 3.16. And I think most people, most modern people, believe, who believe in like a God of, of some kind, most of them would agree with that statement. In fact, they probably say, I'm surprised that it even needs to be said. Of course, God does not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why would he do that? He loves the world. And they don't say that because their theology of John 3.16 is healthy. They say that because they have a very high view of their own value and a very low view of the righteousness and value and glory of God. They have no category in their mind for a loving God to justly condemn the world. And yet Jesus clearly does have this category. And it's a big deal to him. And he wants it to be a big deal to us because it's real. Jesus tells us right here that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And he wants us to be shocked about that. He wants us to be surprised. That's why Jesus has to say this. If it was a given that God would never do this, he wouldn't need to say this. But it's not a given. And Nicodemus knows this. He knows this because he knows his Bible. He knows his scriptures. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament scriptures, they speak of a day when God would, in fact, judge the world in righteousness. They speak of a day when God would return to this world in justice, in his holiness and in his righteousness, and actually condemn the world. And in his judgment, he would lay low and destroy every enemy. And he would redeem his own people. It's called in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. In fact, in the New Testament, it is a day so profound and so significant that they don't even use an adjective anymore. They just call it the day. They don't need to describe it. It's the only day that will matter at the end of time. The day, a day when God returns to judge mankind. Nicodemus knows this. Every Israelite who would have heard Jesus say something like this would know what he means. So when he says, condemn the world, that... God did not send his son to condemn the world. He's thinking about, they're all thinking about this day, and Jesus is saying that his entrance into this world right now is not this day. It's not this great day of judgment. He did not enter the world to condemn the world, which for Nicodemus would be absolutely shocking. The Messiah, the Christ, the son of man, must judge the world. That's what he does. That's how Christ will enter in the kingdom of God. He, he must destroy all of God's enemies through this judgment, and he does this through the day of the Lord. So the idea that the Son of God could enter the world and yet not condemn it is astonishing. It's a strange idea that God would love this world despite how it's treated him, rather than execute justice against it. And even for us, I think, even for the most secular mind and heart, Deep down inside us, there is something that tells us one day, everyone feels this in their bones. One day, we will have to give an account for what we've done in this world. We, we feel it. We feel that, that one day we are going to have to meet our maker and, and we are going to have to give an account for what we have done. This is why things like guilt and shame exist in our, our world. Like even when we do something that nobody sees, we still feel wrong about it. And the reason is because this is hardwired in us. We know, we know someone saw what I just did. And if they're a just being, a just God, then they're keeping an account and I'm going to have to answer for it. Every wrong, every evil, every sinful thought, attitude, desire, one day will have to be paid for. I think we feel that in us. Even the most secular person who would completely disregard everything I just said has something of that in them. And the world, of course, is desperately trying to make the case that no one's going to judge us at the end. But we all know in our hearts that if this world was created by a good God, that good God must judge evil. And that is why Jesus needs to come up the, uh, at the front end of his explanation of John three sixteen, and deal with our condemnation before he tells us of the love of God. We can't understand how profound, how rich, how glorious the love of God is if we don't understand the very condemnation that makes his love necessary. And so Jesus takes us there. He's not afraid to take us there. And that's why we have verse 17 and 18 in our Bible. We wouldn't need 17 and 18 if there wasn't a real condemnation that we are under. And this condemnation that Jesus is referring to is, of course, the great day that we've been talking about. So I want to go there. I want us just briefly, and I know this is uncomfortable text to look at, but I want us to just briefly look at the great day of the Lord because it's talked about throughout the entire Old Testament and we need to see it. There's no way that you and I can understand the love of God if we don't understand the the depths and the gravity of our own condemnation. So what is this day like? I'm gonna read you four verses. Isaiah 13, six through nine. Wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. That's four verses. Isaiah goes on longer. But I felt like that gives us a good understanding of what he's talking about. God does not want us to be blind to this day. That's why this is in the Bible. It is a real day because the condemnation of John, 13, or John 3, 17 and 18 is real. So when Jesus uses this word, condemnation, he is talking about this reality. A day where God no longer mercifully forbears his justice against the cosmic treason of sin, but he comes and he, decide, he, he implements a settling of all accounts. This is what Jesus means when he says in John 3.16, perishing. When he uses that word, he, he's clearly not talking about physical death because everybody dies physically. When Jesus says perishing in John 3.16, he's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about eternal death, an experience of God's justice against the sin of this world. Daniel 13 calls it everlasting condemnation. And Jesus refers to it in Matthew 25 as eternal punishment. And the reason we need to hear this even while we look at John 3:16 is that as we plumb the depths of God's love, Jesus says in John 17, John 3:17, whoever does not believe is condemned already. He says, whoever does not believe is condemned, and then he uses the word already. Meaning that is the default state of humankind. The word already tells us that no one approaches the love of God from a position of neutrality. No one approaches the love of God from a position of of innocence. All of us lie under this same condemnation. Romans 5, 18 through 19 tells us that, that one trespass, the first sin ever committed, led to condemnation for all men. And then Paul goes on and says that by one man's disobedience, the many, all who came from that one man, which is everybody who's ever lived, were made sinners. Paul, of course, is talking about Adam, the father of the human race. And he's he's saying here that, that it took one sin, and this is the kind of worthiness God has. This is the kind of infinite glory he has. It took one sin to decimate the physical world. That was an appropriate response to what Adam did. It took only one sin for, for mankind to be plunged down into a state of condemnation. And, and if we look at Adam and say, why did you do that? We just have to recognize that, that we would have done the same exact thing. We're no different than him. So why is it important for us to to know this stuff in order to understand God's love in John 3, 16? Here's the reason why. Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand and he wants us to understand 2,000 years later that we do not deserve this love. We don't deserve it. We have done nothing to warrant or earn this. There is no value in us that drove or constrained God to do John 3 16 it came freely of his own heart and from his own compassion which should give us a glimpse of how profound and great this love is that it reached down for us despite us that is remarkable that is astonishing but it isn't the most important aspect of this passage. We need to recognize and deal with the fact that we are undeserving. That's what this condemnation explanation after John 3, 16 is all about, but that is not the most remarkable thing. Notice in verse 16 that that Jesus says, God sent his only son. And then notice in verse 18, that when talking about what we must receive what we must believe jesus says the name of the only son of god the only son so part of how we measure i mean in the real world part of how we measure the love of somebody else or in this situation the love of god is the undeservedness of the recipients of this love and we've already made that very clear We did not deserve this love. We did not deserve a single drop. That's huge. That is enough for us to look at this text, stand back, cover our mouths, and be astonished at what God has done through Jesus Christ. But the other way we measure love in John 3.16 is the cost that God incurred to express this love. John 3.16 tells us that God gave his only son Jesus, why say that here? Why use the word only? Why mention that he is, on, he is God's only son? But Jesus is not another man; just another man. He's not a, a teacher, just a teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. Jesus in him referring to himself as the only son of God is saying, I am a being infinitely greater than any other thing in the cosmos. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God from all eternity. There is literally nothing like him in the universe. He is one of a kind, not just unique. He's not just unique. He is the only son of God. The very imprint of God's eternal nature clothed in flesh, in human flesh. And yet this is the price that God holds out to redeem mankind. In order to free us from the condemnation that we see in verses 17 and 18, in order to redeem us from our sin against him, the price had to be his only son. That's how costly sin is in order for him to ransom us from just condemnation before God, in order to rescue us from the day of the Lord that we've been talking about, the price and the cost was so great that the only thing that could pay it, the only thing that could cover it was Jesus. And he pays it with his own life. We know from the last few verses we looked at, 14 and 15, that God's son would be condemned and he would die in our place on the cross. Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we cannot even begin to to talk about the love of God without talking about the cost that he paid for us. And this is the main point of John 3.16. This is the central point. God so loved the world that he sent his only son And verse 18 tells us the eternal life that Christ brings into this world is only ours if we believe, if we receive him. If we we receive him and believe in the the name of the only son of God, like verse 18 tells us, it becomes ours. We receive eternal life. But let's think about what this means here because this is a very profound reality that Jesus is articulating in these three verses The very thing we must believe in is the one thing that God gave up. The immeasurable price that God paid for us is the person who we must trust. So God in sending his son, his only son, isn't just showing us how great and costly our sin is. He is showing us how much greater his son is. He is showing us That there is simply nothing he could have given that is greater in worth and value in the universe than his own son. For God to give up his only son, he, he gave up the greatest, most glorious thing that you can possibly conceive of far beyond anything we've ever seen. And he did that in order to show who Jesus was to us. How awesome, how glorious, how beautiful his son really is. Jesus is a treasure without comparison. God in holding his son out for our sins as a sacrifice is showing us that the one thing we were made for was Jesus. The one thing we must be fixated on is Jesus Christ, his only son. Because if his son cost us our salvation, the whole point of the gospel is every day, every single day for us to see, every time we sin, every time we fall short, for us to see how worthy Jesus really is. For God so loved the world that he, he sent his only son. He gave his only son. God wants us to know the value of Jesus. And he wants us to embrace that value with our whole lives, which is why Jesus is the one we must receive, we must trust. He is the object of our faith because God desires that he would be the object of our worship. The object of our affection. The, the, the joy of our life. Jesus is the greatest gift God could give. He's the greatest expression of love in the universe. God gave us his only son, not just to secure us forgiveness of sins. That, it does that. Praise God it does that. He gave us Christ so that he would be our treasure. Jesus isn't just the way we get to heaven. For people who've seen him, for who he really is, Jesus is heaven to us. He's everything we were made for, everything we desire. And so John 3, 16 brings us into the heart of God where we see the depths of his love in giving the world, giving us His only Son, that so that whoever believes in Him, whoever receives Him, would not perish, but have eternal life. God does not want us to be blind to condemnation and to the, our state of condemnation. Nor does He want us to be blind to the cost of our salvation. But God in sending his only son and in expressing it through Jesus in John 3.16 is saying one very clear thing, Christ alone is worthy. He is worthy of our love. He is worthy of our affection. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our heart's longing. He is worthy of our delight, our desire, and our worship. Jesus Christ deserves our whole being, everything in us, because the very price that God paid to redeem us is the very experience of that life in receiving an unparalleled treasure that has no comparison in this world. There's nothing you could love in this world that's like him. And that treasure is called Jesus Christ, the only son of God. And so if your faith is in Christ Jesus today and you feel comfortable with the individual communion cups, or whatever you have with you right there, um, during this next song, I invite you to receive the Lord's Supper as a visible picture of the cost that God paid for you. And as you receive the elements, I'd ask, you, I'd ask that you consider in your heart the price that was paid to make John 3.16 real for you. Consider the price that Jesus paid with his own life on the cross and consider the treasure you have in that price. Christ Jesus, the only Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an awesome thing that we get to be outside and to gather together in in some way here today. It is an awesome thing, and we are grateful for it. But what is infinitely more awesome is that the greatest reality in the universe, Christ Jesus, the image of the invisible God, was given to this world so that in the payment of our sins, we would be able to receive him through faith and he would become the center of our reality the center of our life the center of our joy the center of our affection and so i pray right now father god that that the glories of john 3:16 would not pass us by today i pray that you would infiltrate our hearts and grant us the wisdom and the discernment we need to see this world through the lens of having the greatest treasure imaginable, Christ. That we would live our lives knowing that there is nothing anyone could take away from us because in Jesus we have all things that we need. And Father, I pray that you would work during this next song, Father, and tomorrow morning as we worship together online, work in our hearts to create a kind of gladness in Jesus that he deserves. A kind of worship in our heart that he deserves for who he is and what he's done. We give you all the glory, Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.